Cram, I've never prayed to you before. I don't have the tongue for it. But I ask you now, grant me delicious chalupas. And if you will not help me, chalupa for you. Oh, I ought to apologize for that, but I have decided not to. This is Rich Outfield, and you are listening to the podcast, The Dares Not Speak Its Name. My mom works at the, uh, the local hospital in the gift shop. She just does it one day a week. And today, my sister took her car, and my mom, my mom didn't have a way to get to the hospital unless she took my dad's truck. And I said, oh, you don't have to take the truck. I'll you just take my car. I'll be fine. I'm not going anywhere today. And so she took my car and uh, I got it into my head a few minutes ago. Oh, I'm going to do a, a podcast episode because I have got about 45 minutes. Maybe I'll drive over to Walmart, grab a donut, and I'll record that podcast. And I went out and my car was gone. And so I decided to walk around the block. I've actually done this before. I walked around the block when I got COVID and recorded the episode about that, where I felt dirty, like I had contracted a social disease. Just, it's weird. I'm not sure why I felt that way. But, you know, you feel like you feel. And then there was the time, I believe it was like Halloween night, that I was walking around the neighborhood recording. And this car pulled up and these guys wanted to know what I was doing. And I said, oh, just out for a walk. And uh, they were sure that I was a criminal. And they, they followed me around and they said, where do you live? Uh, there was something irritating about that. They, they came back when I was on the front lawn recording. And... I wish that I were more confrontational because I would have told them what they could do with themselves. And I should have, but I didn't. Anyway, here I am recording. Boy, there's a breeze. Yeah, this might be a very short episode, guys. <laughs> a short and loud episode. I'm going to walk over here where there are no cars. Today I'm going to be presenting to you The Ash Tree by M.R. James. It is uh, the second M.R. James story I've done on this show, and it is presumably the last. We'll find out. Depends on the reception, I suppose. The story is from 1904 or thereabouts. It was published in his 1904 collection. And I, I had never heard of M.R. James before 2021. But I've liked what I've heard. The nice thing about these public domain stories is that I don't have to worry about clearances or, you know, the consequences if uh, it, it, it were to bother somebody. Well, I'll talk more about that on the other side. Uh, in, enjoy the story if you're at all able. Please don't operate any heavy machinery or operate on any patients or animals while listening to this story. 
and um, I'll see you soon. Hear you soon. No, you'll hear me. The Ash Tree by M.R. James. Everyone who's traveled over Eastern England knows the smaller country houses with which it is studded. The rather dank little buildings, usually in the Italian style, surrounded with parks of some 80 to 100 acres. For me, they have always had a very strong attraction, with a grey paling of split oak, the noble trees, the meres with their reed beds, and the line of distant woods. Then, I, like the pillared portico, perhaps stuck on to a red-brick Queen Anne house, which has been faced with stucco to bring it into line with the Grecian taste of the end of the 18th century, the hole inside going up to the roof, which hole ought always to be provided with a gallery and a small organ. I like the library, too, where you may find anything, from a Psalter of the 13th century to a Shakespeare quarto. I like the pictures, of course, and perhaps most of all I like fancying what life in such a house was when it was first built and in the piping times of landlord's prosperity, and not least now when, if money is not so plentiful, taste is more varied, and life quite as interesting. I wish to have one of these houses, and enough money to keep it together and entertain my friends in it modestly. But this is a digression. I have to tell you of a curious series of events which happened in such a house as I have tried to describe. It is Castringham, Hall, in Suffolk. I think a good deal has been done to the building since the period of my story, but the essential features I have sketched are still there. Italian portico, square block of white house, older inside than out, park with fringe of woods and mere. The one feature that marked out the house from a score of others is gone. As you looked at it from the park, you saw on the right a great old ash tree growing within half a dozen yards of the wall, and almost a quite touching the building with its branches. I suppose it had stood there ever since Castringham ceased to be a fortified place, and since the moat was filled in and the Elizabethan dwelling-house built. At any rate, it had well-nigh attained its full dimensions in the year 1690. In that year, the district in which the hall is situated was the scene of a number of witch trials. It will be long, I think, before we arrive at a just estimate of the amount of solid reason, if there was any, which lay at the root of the universal fear of witches in old times. Whether the persons accused of this offence really did imagine that they were possessed of unusual powers of any kind, or whether they had the will, at least, if not the power, of doing mischief to their neighbours, or whether all the confessions of which there are so many, were exhorted by the mere cruelty of the witch-finders. These are questions which are not, I fancy, yet solved. And the present narrative gives me pause. I cannot altogether sweep it away as mere invention. The reader must judge for himself. Castringham contributed a victim to the auto-de-fe. Mrs. Mothersole was her name, and she differed from the ordinary run of village witches only in being rather better off and in a more influential position. 
efforts were made to save her by several reputable farmers of the parish. They did their best to testify to her character, and showed considerable anxiety as to the verdict of the jury. But what seems to have been fatal to the woman was the evidence of the then proprietor of Castringham Hall, Sir Matthew Fell. He deposed to having watched her on three different occasions from his window, at the full of the moon, gathering sprigs from the ash tree near my house. She had climbed into the branches, clad only in her shift, and was cutting off small twigs with a peculiarly curved knife, and as she did so she seemed to be talking to herself. On each occasion Sir Matthew had done his best to capture the woman, but she had always taken alarm at some accidental noise he had made, and all he could see when he got down to the garden was a hare running across the park in the direction of the village. On the third night he had been at pains to follow at his best speed, and had gone straight to Mrs. Mothersow's house, but he had had to wait a quarter of an hour, battering at her door, and then she had come out very cross, and apparently very sleepy, as if just out of bed, and he had no good explanation to offer of his visit. Mainly on this evidence, though there was much more of a less striking and unusual kind from other parishioners, Mrs. Mothersole was found guilty and condemned to die. She was hanged a week after the trial with five or six more unhappy creatures at Bury St. Edmunds. Sir Matthew Fell, then deputy sheriff, was present at the execution. It was a damp, drizzly March morning when the cart made its way up the rough grass hill outside Northgate, where the gallows stood. The other victims were apathetic or broken down with misery, but Mrs. Mothersole was, as in life so in death, of a very different temper. Her poisonous rage, as a reporter of the time puts it, did so work upon the bystanders, yea, even upon the hangman, that it was constantly affirmed of all that saw her that she presented the living aspect of a mad devil. Yet she offered no resistance to the officers of the law, only she looked upon those that laid hands upon her with so direful and venomous an aspect that, as one of them afterwards assured me, the mere thought of it preyed inwardly upon his mind for six months after. However, all that she is reported to have said was the seemingly meaningless words, There will be guests at the hall, which she repeated more than once in an undertone. Sir Matthew Fell was not unimpressed by the bearing of the woman. He had some talk upon the matter with the vicar of his parish, with whom he travelled home after the assize business was over. His evidence at the trial had not been very willingly given. He was not specially infected with the witch-finding mania, but he declared, then and afterwards, that he could not give any other account of the matter than that he had given, and that he could not possibly have been mistaken as to what he saw. The whole transaction had been repugnant to him, for he was a man who liked to be on pleasant terms with those about him, and he saw duty to be done in this business, and he had done it. Now that seems to have been the gist of his sentiments, and the vicar applauded it, as any reasonable man must have done. A few weeks after, when the moon of May was at the full, Vicar and Squire met again at the park, and walked to the hall together, 
Lady Fell was with her mother, who was dangerously ill, and Sir Matthew was alone at home. So the vicar, Mr. Crom, was easily persuaded to take a late supper at the hall. Sir Matthew was not very good company this evening. The talk ran chiefly on family and parish matters, and, as luck would have it, Sir Matthew made a memorandum in writing of certain wishes or intentions of his regarding his estates, which afterwards proved exceedingly useful. When Mr. Crom thought of starting for home, about half-past nine o'clock, Sir Matthew and he took a preliminary turn on the gravelled walk at the back of the house. The only incident that struck Mr. Crom was this. They were in sight of the ash-tree, which I described as growing near the windows of the building, when Sir Matthew stopped and said, "'What is that that runs up and down the stem of the ash? It is never a squirrel. They will all be in their nests by now.' The vicar looked and saw the moving creature, but he could make nothing of its colour in the moonlight. The sharp outline, however, seen for an instant, was imprinted on his brain, and he could have sworn, he said, though it sounded foolish, that, squirrel or not, it had more than four legs. Still, not much was to be made of the momentary vision, and the two men parted. They may have met since then, but it was not for a score of years. Next day Sir Matthew Fell was not downstairs at six in the morning, as was his custom, nor at seven, nor yet at eight. Hereupon the servants went and knocked at his chamber door. I need not prolong the description of their anxious listening and renewed batterings on the panels. The door was opened at last from the outside, and they found their master dead and black. So much you have guessed. That there were any marks of violence did not at the moment appear, but the window was open. One of the men went to fetch the parson, and then, by his direction, rode on to give notice to the coroner. Mr. Crom himself went as quick as he might to the hall, and was shown to the room where the dead man lay. He has left some notes among his papers, which show how genuine a respect and sorrow was felt for Sir Matthew, and there is also this passage which I transcribe for the sake of the light it throws upon the course of events, and also upon the common beliefs of the time. There was not any the least trace of an entrance having been forced to the chamber, but the casement stood open, as my poor friend would always have it in this season. He had his evening drink of small ale in a silver vessel, of about a pint measure, and to-night had not drunk it out. This drink was examined by the physician from Bury, a Mr. Hodgkins, who could not, however, as he afterwards declared upon his oath before the coroner's quest, discover that any matter of a venomous kind was present in it. For, as was natural in the great swelling and blackness of the corpse, there was talk made among the neighbours of poison, the body was very much disordered as it laid in the bed, being twisted after so extreme a sort as gave too probable conjecture that my worthy friend and patron had expired in great pain and agony. And what is yet unexplained, and to myself the argument of some horrid and artful design in the perpetrators of this barbarous murder, was this, that the women which were entrusted with the laying out of the corpse and washing it, being both sad persons and very well respected in their mournful profession, 
came to me in a great pain and distress, both of mind and body, saying, what was indeed confirmed upon the first view, that they had no sooner touched the breast of the corpse with their naked hands than they were sensible of a more than ordinary violent smart and aching in their palms, which, with their whole forearms in no long time, swelled so immoderately, the pain still continuing, that, as afterwards proved, during many weeks they were forced to lay by the exercise of their calling, and yet no mark seen on the skin. Upon hearing this, I sent for the physician, who was still in the house, and we made as careful a proof as we were able, by the help of a small magnifying lens of crystal, of the condition of the skin on this part of the body, but could not detect with the instrument we had any matter of importance beyond a couple of small punctures or pricks, which we then concluded were the spots by which the poison might be introduced remembering that ring of Pope Borgia, with other known specimens of the horrid art of the Italian poisoners of the last age. So much is to be said of the symptoms seen on the corpse. As to what I am to add, it is merely my own experiment, and to be left to posterity to judge whether there be anything of value therein. There was on the table by the bedside a Bible of the small size, in which my friend, punctual as in matters of less moment, so in this more weighty one, used nightly, and upon his first rising to read a set portion, and I, taking it up, not without a tear duly paid to him which from the study of this poorer adumbration was now passed to the contemplation of its great original, it came into my thoughts, as at such moments of helplessness we are prone to catch at any the least glimmer that makes promise of light, to make trial of that old and by many accounted superstitious practice of drawing the sorts of which a principal instance, in the case of his late sacred majesty, the blessed martyr King Charles, and my Lord Falkland, was now much talked of. I must needs admit that by my trial not much assistance was afforded me, yet, as the cause and origin of these dreadful events may hereafter be searched out, I set down the results. In the case it may be found that they pointed the true quarter of the mischief to a quicker intelligence than my own. I made then three trials, opening the book and placing my finger upon certain words, which gave in the first these words from Luke 13, 7, cut it down. In the second, Isaiah 13, 20, it shall never be inhabited. And upon the third experiment, Job 39.30, her young ones also suck up blood. This is all that need be quoted from Mr. Crom's papers. Sir Matthew Fell was duly coffined and laid into the earth, and his funeral sermon, preached by Mr. Crom on the following Sunday, has been printed under the title of The Unsearchable Way, or England's Danger and the Malicious Dealings of Antichrist, it being the vicar's view, as well as that most commonly held in the neighbourhood, that the squire was the victim of a recrudescence of the popish plot.
His son, Sir Matthew II, succeeded to the title and estates, and so ends the first act of the Castringham tragedy. It is to be mentioned, though the fact is not surprising, that the new baronet did not occupy the room in which his father had died, nor indeed was it slept in by anyone but an occasional visitor during the whole of his occupation. He died in 1735, and I do not find that anything particular marked his reign, save a curiously constant mortality among his cattle and livestock in general, which showed a tendency to increase slightly as time went on. Those who are interested in the details will find a statistical account in a letter to the Gentleman's Magazine of 1772, which draws the facts from the baronet's own papers. He put an end to it at last by a very simple expedient, that of shutting up all his beasts in sheds at night, and keeping no sheep in his park, for he had noticed that nothing was ever attacked that spent the night indoors. After that the disorder confined itself to wild birds and beasts of chase, but as we have no good account of the symptoms, and as all night watching was quite unproductive of any clue, I do not dwell on what the Suffolk farmers called castringham sickness. The second Sir Matthew died in 1735, as I said, and was duly succeeded by his son, Sir Richard. It was in his time that the great family pew was built out on the north side of the parish church. So large were the squire's ideas that several of the graves on that unhallowed side of the building had to be disturbed to satisfy his requirements. Among them was that of Mrs. Mothersole, the position of which was accurately known, thanks to a note on a plan of the church and yard, both made by Mr. Crom. A certain amount of interest was excited in the village when it was known that the famous witch, who was still remembered by a few, was to be exhumed, and the feeling of surprise, and indeed disquiet, was very strong when it was found that, though her coffin was fairly sound and unbroken, there was no trace whatever inside it of body, bones, or dust. Indeed, it is a curious phenomenon, for at the time of her burying no such things were dreamt of as resurrection men, and it is difficult to conceive any rational motive for stealing a body otherwise than for the uses of the dissecting room. The incident revived for a time all the stories of witch trials and of the exploits of the witches, dormant for forty years, and Sir Richard's orders that the coffin should be burnt were thought by a good many to be rather foolhardy, though they were duly carried out. Sir Richard was a pestilent innovator, it is certain. Before his time, the hall had been a fine block of the mellowest red brick, but Sir Richard had travelled in Italy and had become infected with the Italian taste, and having more money than his predecessors, he determined to leave an Italian palace where he had found an English house. So stucco and ashlar masked the brick. Some indifferent Roman marbles were placed about in the entrance hall and gardens. A reproduction of the Sibyl's Temple at Tivoli was erected on the opposite bank of the mere. And Castringham took on an entirely new and, I must say, a less engaging aspect. But it was much admired and served as a model to a good many of the neighbouring gentry in after years. One morning, it was in 1754, 
Sir Richard woke after a night of discomfort. It had been windy, and his chimney had smoked persistently, and yet it was so cold that he must keep up a fire. Also something had so rattled about the window that no man could get a moment's peace. Further, there was the prospect of several guests of position arriving in the course of the day, who would expect sport of some kind, and the inroads of the distemper which continued among his game had been lately so serious that he was afraid for his reputation as a game-preserver. But what really touched him most nearly was the other matter of his sleepless night. He could certainly not sleep in that room again. That was the chief subject of his meditations at breakfast, and after it he began a systematic examination of the rooms to see which would suit his notions best. It was long before he found one. This had a window with an eastern aspect, and that with a northern. This door the servants would always be passing, and he did not like the bedstead in that. No, he must have a room with a western lookout, so that the sun could not wake him early, and it must be out of the way of the business of the house. The housekeeper was at the end of her resources. "'Well, Sir Richard,' she said, "'you know that there is but one room like that in the house.' "'Which may that be?' said Sir Richard. "'And that is Sir Matthew's, the west chamber.' "'Well, put me in there, for there I'll lie to-night,' said her master. "'Which way is it? Here, to be sure,' and he hurried off. "'Oh, Sir Richard, but no one has slept there these forty years.' The air has hardly been changed since Sir Matthew died there. Thus she spoke, and rustled after him. Come, open the door, Mrs. Chiddick. I'll see the chamber at least. So it was opened, and indeed the smell was very close and earthy. Sir Richard crossed to the window, and impatiently, as was his wont, threw the shutters back, and flung open the casement for this end of the house was one which the alterations had barely touched, grown up as it was with the great ash-tree, and being otherwise concealed from view. "'Air it, Mrs. Chiddick, all to-day, and move my bed-furniture in the afternoon. Put the Bishop of Kilmore in my old room.' "'Pray, Sir Richard,' said a new voice, breaking in on this speech, "'might I have the favour of a moment's interview?' Sir Richard turned round and saw a man in black in the doorway, who bowed. I must ask your indulgence for this intrusion, Sir Richard. You will perhaps hardly remember me. My name is William Crom, and my grandfather was vicar here in your grandfather's time. Well, sir, said Sir Richard, the name of Crom is always a passport to Castringham. I am glad to renew a friendship of two generations standing. In what can I serve you for your hour of calling, and, if I do not mistake you, your bearing shows you to be in some haste? "'That is no more than the truth, sir. "'I am riding from Norwich to Bury St. Edmunds "'with what haste I can make, and, "'and I have called in on my way "'to leave you with some papers "'which we have but just come upon "'in looking over what my grandfather left at his death. "'It is thought you may find "'some matters of family interest in them.' "'You're mighty obliging, Mr. Crom, "'and if you will be so good "'as to follow me into the parlour "'and drink a glass of wine, "'we will take a first look "'at these same papers together.' And you, Mrs. Chiddock, as I said, be about airing this chamber. Yes, it is here my grandfather died. Yes, the tree, perhaps, does make the place a little dampish. No, I, I do not wish to listen to any more. Make no difficulties, I beg. You have your orders. Go. 
Will you follow me, sir? They went to the study, the packet which young Mr. Crom had brought. He was then just become a fellow of Clare Hall in Cambridge, I may say, and subsequently brought out a respectable edition of Polyanus, contained, among other things, the notes which the old vicar had made upon the occasion of Sir Matthew Fell's death, and for the first time Sir Richard was confronted with the enigmatical sortis biblicae which you have heard. They amused him a good deal. Well, he said, my grandfather's Bible gave one prudent piece of advice. Cut it down. <laughs> if that stands for the ash tree, he may rest assured I shall not neglect it. Such a nest of catars and agues was never seen. The parlour contained the family books, which, pending the arrival of a collection which Sir Richard had made in Italy, and the building of a proper room to receive them, were not many in number. Sir Richard looked up from the paper to the bookcase. "'I wonder,' says he, "'whether the old prophet is there yet. "'I fancy I see him.' Crossing the room, he took out a dumpy Bible, which, sure enough, bore on the fly-leaf the inscription, "'To Matthew Fell, from his loving godmother, Anne Aldous, to September, 1659.' "'It would be no bad plan to test him again, Mr. Crom. "'I will wager we get a couple of names in the chronicles.' Hmm, what have we here? Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. <laughs> well, well, your grandfather would have made a fine omen of that, eh? No more profits for me. They are all in a tale. And now, Mr. Crom, I am infinitely obliged to you for your packet. You will, I fear, be impatient to get on. Pray allow me another glass. So, with offers of hospitality, which were genuinely meant, for Sir Richard thought well of the young man's address and manner, they parted. So, with offers of hospitality, which were genuinely meant, for Sir Richard thought well of the young man's address and manner, they parted. In the afternoon came the guests, the Bishop of Kilmore, Lady Mary Hervey, Sir William Kentfield, etc., dinner at five, wine, cards, supper, and dispersal to bed. Next morning, Sir Richard is disinclined to take his gun with the rest. He talks with the Bishop of Kilmore. This prelate, unlike a good many of the Irish bishops of his day, had visited his see and, indeed, resided there for some considerable time. This morning, as the two were walking along the terrace and talking over the alterations and improvements in the house, the bishop said, pointing to the window of the west room, "'You could never get one of my Irish flock to occupy that room, Sir Richard.' Why is that, my lord? It is, in fact, my own. Well, our Irish peasantry will always have it, that it brings the worst of luck to sleep near an ash-tree. And you have a fine growth of ash not two yards from your chamber window. Perhaps, as the bishop went on with a smile, it has given you a touch of its quality already, for you do not seem, if I may say it, so much the fresher for your night's rest as your friends would like to see you. That, or... Oh, Something else, it is true, cost me my sleep from twelve to four, my lord, but the tree's to come down to-morrow, so I shall not hear much more from it. I applaud your determination. It can hardly be wholesome to have the air you breathe strained, as it were, through all that leafage. Your lordship is right there, I think, but I had not my window open last night. It was rather the noise that went on, 
no doubt from the twigs sweeping the glass that kept me open-eyed. I think that can hardly be, Sir Richard. You see it from this point. None of these nearest branches can even touch your casement unless there were a gale, and there was none of that last night. They miss the panes by a foot. No, sir, true. What then will it be, I wonder, that scratched and rustled so, I and covered the dust on my sill with lines and marks? At last they agreed that the rats must have come up through the ivy. That was the bishop's idea, and Sir Richard jumped at it. So the day passed quietly, and night came, and the party dispersed to their rooms and wished Sir Richard a better night. And now we are in his bedroom, with the light out and the squire in bed. The room is over the kitchen and the night outside still and warm, so the window stands open. There is very little light about the bedstead, but there is a strange movement there. It seems as if Sir Richard were moving his head rapidly to and fro, with only the slightest possible sound, and now you would guess, so deceptive is the half-darkness, that he had several heads, round and brownish, which moved back and forth, even as low as his chest. It is a horrible illusion. Is it nothing more? There, something drops off the bed with a slop plump, like a kitten and is out of the window in a flash, and another, four, and after that there is quiet again. Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. As with Sir Matthew, so with Sir Richard, dead and black in his bed. A pale and silent party of guests and servants gathered under the window when the news was known. Italian poisoners, popish emissaries, infected air, all these and more guesses were hazarded, and the Bishop of Kilmore looked at the tree, in the fork of whose lower boughs a white tomcat was crouching, looking down the hollow which years had gnawed in the trunk. It was watching something inside the tree with great interest. Suddenly it got up and craned over the hole, then a bit of the edge on which it stood gave way, and it went slithering in. Everyone looked up at the noise of the fall. It is known to most of us that a cat can cry, but few of us have heard, I hope, such a yell as came out of the trunk of the great ash. Two or three screams there were, the witnesses are not sure which, and then a slight and muffled noise of some commotion or struggling was all that came. But Lady Mary Hervey fainted outright, and the housekeeper stopped her ears and fled till she fell on the terrace. The Bishop of Kilmore and Sir William Kentfield stayed, yet even they were daunted, though it was only at the cry of a cat, and Sir William swallowed once or twice before he could say, "'There is something more than we know of in that tree, my lord. I am for an instant search.' And this was agreed upon. A ladder was brought, and one of the gardeners went up, and, looking down the hollow, could detect nothing but a few dim indications of something moving. They got a lantern, and let it down by a rope. "'We must get at the bottom of this. My life upon it, my lord, but the secret of these terrible deaths is there.' Up went the gardener again with the lantern, and let it down the hall cautiously. 
They saw the yellow light upon his face as he bent over, and saw his face struck with an incredulous terror and loathing before he cried out in a dreadful voice and fell back from the ladder where, happily, he was caught by two of the men, letting the lantern fall inside the tree. He was in a dead faint, and it was some time before any word could be got from him. By then they had something else to look at. The lantern must have broken at the bottom, and the light in it caught upon dry leaves and rubbish that lay there, for in a few minutes a dense smoke began to come up, and then flame, and, to be short, the tree was in a blaze. The bystanders made a ring at some yard's distance, and so William and the bishop sent men to get what weapons and tools they could, for clearly whatever might be using the tree as its lair would be forced out by the fire. So it was. First, at the fork, they saw a round body covered with fire the size of a man's head appear very suddenly, then seem to collapse and fall back. This five or six times. Then a similar ball leapt into the air and fell on the grass, where after a moment it lay still. The bishop went, as near as he dared to it, and saw the remains of an enormous spider, venous and seared, and, as the fire burned lower down, more terrible bodies like this began to break out from the trunk, and it was seen that these were covered with greyish hair. All that day the ash burned, and until it fell to pieces the men stood about it, and from time to time killed the brutes as they darted out. At last there was a long interval when none appeared, and they cautiously closed in and examined the roots of the tree. They found, says the Bishop of Kilmore, below it a rounded, hollow place in the earth, wherein were two or three bodies of these creatures that had plainly been smothered by the smoke, and, what is to me more curious, at the side of this den, against the wall was crouching the anatomy or skeleton of a human being, with the skin dried upon the bones, having some remains of black hair, which was pronounced by those that examined it to be undoubtedly the body of a woman, and clearly dead for a period of fifty years. Okay, there you go, the ash tree. And I should have given you a disclaimer there. Two disclaimers. So, the first story that I did by James was Casting the Ruins. It's a fairly famous story of his, uh, and it's, it's good. The language is a little dry, but uh, it was a story that took place in England, and I chose to use my regular speaking voice for the narration because I, I can't remember now why I made that choice. I just thought it could work that the, the main character was American, but it shouldn't have been. Uh, it was a mistake. And so when it came time to do a second M.R. James story, I decided, well, I'm going to commit, and I'm going to do the whole thing in an accent. And about halfway through the story, I realized that I didn't need to. That it could have just been my regular speaking voice, and I did all the character voices in an accent. And I made the decision that because I had already been recording, 
for 20 minutes or so, I would not go back and start over. I would just stay committed. So there is that. And maybe I should have warned you on that. I, ah. One of the movies that I quote most often on this show is when Dirty Harry said, Man's got to know his limitations. That made an impact on me, a sudden impact, if you will, when I saw it. And I believe that it's true, that everybody has things that are really difficult for them. And you need to be aware of that. I, I don't believe that there are people that are great at everything. There are things that you are strong with that I am weak, and I'm assuming vice versa. And this story <laughs> had a character that seemed to be Irish. And Irish is one of those limitations of mine. I cannot do an Irish accent. Uh, it comes off like a cartoon. But... You've got to understand that that is how Irish is perceived in America and by me. You know, I've heard the way that Liam Neeson talks, and his Irish accent is very, very soft. And then I had a friend named John who was Irish, and he was the person that taught me to say shite. And his accent was nothing like a leprechaun's accent, but I could never imitate it. And so, basically, you guys got a saint Begora type Irish accent for the, the part of the bishop. The, the bishop, bishop of, of Kilmore. And again, I, I'm not going to apologize for that, but I probably should have given you a warning about it. So, this story was not the one that I was going to present in this episode. I was going to do another story that I recorded in November of 2021 and recorded an episode for on my drive back from the cabin the last time that I went to the cabin. And I fully chose for that to be this episode. And then I looked up that story and discovered that the author uh, was born in 1956 and he's alive. And I thought, oh shoot, should I go ahead? What, what should I do on this? Dang. It was in that big book of ghost stories that I got this from, that I got the ash tree from. And I had just assumed that it was a much older story than it apparently is. It takes place, I believe, in 1981. It talks about the movies that are playing at the theater. And so it couldn't be any older than 1981. Anyhow, I thought, gosh, this guy is alive and he's part of the writing community. I thought, I'm going to contact this guy and I'll ask him about the story. And if he doesn't respond, then that's probably the next podcast that dares not speak its name. But if he does, then I can ask him for like an author's note and stuff like that. And, and, and so that would be really, really neat. But I chose to postpone that episode. And in its place, I knew I had a recording of the ash tree already. I just needed to edit it. So I started on the edit last night and I finished it today. And here we are doing the episode. 
I said before, and I may have said it multiple times, but I said before on the last Mr. James episode that to help me fall asleep, I will put the readings by Michael Horden on YouTube on. He does multiple Mr. James stories, and I've never, I, I, this is not an exaggeration, I've never made it through without falling asleep. They, they, they seem to me very dry, and the narration seems to me very dry, and I'm very easily distracted. And I'm sure that his narration is much more authentic than mine, uh, as far as the accent goes. But I try to be less dry, as you know. And this is actually a very, very good story. Just the way that it is told is more old-fashioned and is much more sedate than I would prefer. Just like they made a movie of Casting the Runes and they had to rework it substantially, if you were to make a movie of The Ash Tree, you would have to rework it in much the same way. The, the visual of the end with the the great big squirrel-sized spiders and the body of the witch inside the tree. That's all delightful. That's just great, great horror movie stuff. And I'd love to see it adapted as a film. Uh, in fact, my friend Ian sent me an email yesterday asking about projects. He's, got, he's done some business with Netflix and... They're producing a film that he, I guess, is one of the writers on, he said, which is really interesting because Ian was never a writer. And he asked if I had any ideas for something that he could take to Netflix. And I, my mind went blank. But boy, uh, an adaptation of The Ash Tree would be pretty great. So, so I mentioned that these stories put me to sleep. There is a reading of the ash tree on YouTube, and I guarantee the accent is much more genuine. I put that on just the other day. Well, the other night. I put it on, and I fell asleep to it, as I often do, and I had a nightmare. And in the nightmare, there were all of these spiders. They were in like a parcel or something like that, something that I had picked up. I was just like, oh, this is on the side of the road, and I was holding it, or maybe it was at the cabin. I had found it at the cabin, and I was holding it, and then I felt something on my hand, and I looked down, and there were hundreds of big, round, black spiders. And I'm assuming those were black widows or something like that, because I'm very afraid of black widows. But it was one of those where it was just like, yeah! And then I woke up, and I looked over at the laptop and it was playing the ash tree. And I thought, ah, this story gave me a nightmare. And so it helped me decide what the next presentation should be. Oh, it would be great if somebody said that my reading gave them nightmares. It's like, Rish, I, 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 I had all these nightmares that people spoke in this phony Irish accent, unlike anything anyone actually speaks in. 
I, I tried to look at the history of the story, find out when it was published, like if it was in a magazine or an anthology or, or something. The, the best that I could see was that it was put out in a book called Ghost Stories of an Antiquary in 1904. And the stories in that collection uh, by M.R. James were Canon Albrecht's scrapbook, Lost Hearts, The Mezzotint, Ash Tree, Number 13, Count Magnus, Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, and The Treasure of Abbot Thomas. Those are in that book, and they're all in the public domain, and I had considered doing a whistle, and I'll come to thee, my lad, because that was the story that Stephen King mentioned, and somebody else mentioned the same week in their book. The, the stories all have in common that they are wordy and relaxed and old-fashioned, and that makes them less vibrant to produce in audio. We recently did the Black Cat episode over on Journey Into uh, by Edgar Allan Poe, and it's got histrionics in it and rantings and ravings, and it lends itself so wonderfully to a modern reading. And there are Poe stories that aren't that way, but this one works in that way and works better, I would say, than the ash tree does. But I really like the plot of the ash tree, and I just I, I like that idea of, of the witch's curse. And uh, I looked, I tried to see if there had been filmic adaptations, and there had been a television adaptation in the 60s for British television. And I'm sure that it was very, 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 very low budget. But that's okay. I mean, the only special effects you'd really need would be the revelation of the spiders at the end. And wouldn't it be great if they just used tarantulas or something and did their best to make them look large? But my guess is that they didn't. And um, there had been a an audio adaptation just a couple of years ago, uh, like 2018, 2019, that was done by some British actors where they did a full cast production of a modernized adaptation of the story. And I wanted to listen to it, but you had to buy it. And uh, even so, if it had been particularly great, I suppose <laughs> that would... Uh, have dissuaded me. There would have been a warning at the beginning of this episode. Don't listen to this. Listen to theirs instead. I'll mention it to Ian and see if, if he thinks that that's something worth pursuing. I just like the plot of the story more than I like the story itself. I'm not sure that my reading does justice to the story, but it is what it is. Acting is a series of choices, and I made my choices on this production, and maybe they were wrong, but like I said, I committed to them. And so it, it led in a certain direction, and that's, uh, that's fine.
See, now I'm thinking of an adaptation, and maybe you could do it from the point of view of the descendant of the very first victim of the witch's curse, and he's, he's piecing together clues and the history of the ash tree, of the house, of the many tragedies of that house, and uh, he doesn't want to be next, and maybe you give him a companion, whether it is uh, an older woman who knows the history of the house that can tell the stories, a, the grandson of the priest, maybe, who can talk about the stories that his grandfather told. Anyway, I'm not too attached to it. I was just thinking about it. I, I do really, really like... I really like the visual of the... What is that? It looks like a squirrel, but it's got too many legs, etc. That kind of stuff. Nowadays, with special effects, you can do anything and show anything. Usually, it looks pretty good, unless the CG is terrible. But I feel like you'd probably do it with spider puppets, too, especially if you're burning them. And yeah, I would establish like a locket around the witch's neck or a ring on her finger or something, and, and you show in the final shot that the skeleton inside the tree has that same locket or has that same ring just so that you know it hammers home you don't need a line of dialogue to show that this is the same witch and so it's something that, that I, i'm thinking about and that i'm enjoying and i hope that you enjoyed my presentation of the story i hope that you liked the story and that you could forgive my accents I am quite fond of these old ghost stories, even though this isn't, you know, technically a ghost story. It falls into that category. Uh, and if so, there are more to come. So thank you for listening. I have been Rish Outfield. And, and just, you know, cut down any trees that you have on your property, just, just to be safe. Good night. Whether by design or dreadful mistake, you have been listening to the podcast that dares not speak its name, which was produced under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, no derivatives license. By all means, listen, download, share the file with your bitterest friends and most beloved enemies, but the file shan't be sold, edited, or claimed as your own. No doubt you noticed the fine music in this episode, by one Kevin McLeod of the website Incompetech.com, who released it under a Creative Commons license. I only wish he had a podcast so I could be listening to that instead. It was a day like any other. It was a day like any other. Smoggy, overcast, blood gnats the size of calm links flying around. You're making fun of me. Uh, I'd be too intimidated to make fun of a senator. It was a day like any other. Smoggy, overcast. It was a day like any other. Here's looking at you, sweetheart. 
usually about the plague that took so many lives, and the gratitude they had to the mother they were still among the living, usually about the plague that took so many lives, and the thankfulness they had to the mother that they were still among the living, and the gratitude they had to the mother. Nope, doesn't sound as good. And the appreciation, and the appreciation they had to the mother that they were still among the living, and the gratefulness they had to the mother that they were still among the living. I love to loop us, do you love them too? Are you a person who considers screw a profanity? Will not me. I remember a few years ago, they had uh, lightened the restrictions on profanity on television so that you could say asshole on TV. But here's a weird thing. Because of like some archaic rule that was still on the books, you couldn't say butthole. Never forget that, my child. I may say, and subsequently brought out a respectable edition of Polyanus, 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 contained among other things the notes which contained among other contained among other things the notes which the old vicar had made upon the occasion of Sir William's fells. Contained among other things the notes which the old vicar had made upon the occasion of Sir Matthew Fell's death. Uh, it was a mistake to do that with an English accent. I think I would have been done already, and I, I, I tried. I, I, I do try. Uh, he said, 